Hi everyone, welcome to There's Always Tea, the place to be to discover true, exciting insights about everything from famous people across our history, to travel, to tea, to the ethereal universe and everything in between. We find that a cup of tea and a chat solves a lot, so pour your favorite cuppa or even make one of Nikki's teas and travel to a different place with us. I'm Keith Hopton and I'm in the studio with Nikki Jordan. Hey Nick, great to see you again. How are you? I'm great and really looking forward to the show because we have different things to bring to this discussion today. And look, I'm even dressed for the part. <laughs> yes, you are. Well, well done <laughs> for getting completely immersed in the theme. <laughs> so listeners, our show today is all about colours, amazing colours. And Nick is, well, looking very sun-like. <laughs> that sounds intense. I'm dressed in a sunny yellow happy flower dress. Okay, so look, Keith, you're in your obligatory black again, I see. Actually, it's very navy dark blue, but, you know, yeah. we can go with that. Like that makes all the difference. <laughs> hey, quick question. Um, before I forget, on the Facebook page, I know you put clues out there every week yes. with regards to what the podcast is going to be. Did anyone actually get it? I do put clues out. And actually, we have a clever bunch of people listening to our show, I tell you. Um, but no, as of recording this, nobody. we've had some very inventive <laughs> um, answers, but no, nobody got it. I thought it was no. a really good clue. Cool. I thought it was an easy one. Yeah. It was a toughie, obviously. No one got it. And they got the General Gordon clue, which just blows my mind. I know. They did get the General Gordon clue. Yes. So um, so back to my colours, because that was just on my mind as we um, as we said that. So mm. blue black is my is actually my go-to colour. Um yep. and it's almost like a uniform to me. I don't have to think about it. I can get up, I can just put the same uniform on every day. Yeah, I actually don't think I've seen you in anything else, to be honest. But look, if that works for you, then that's all that matters. <laughs> actually, Keith. Black is many things, but on the higher energy side, it's also the color of the divine feminine. So oh, there you go. The, you're bringing in the divine feminine. I love that. So the divine feminine dragons are remarkable, right? Lots going on with them at the moment, and they're all around us. <laughs> if I saw a black dragon, Nick, I'd be wondering what you put in the tea. <laughs> Oh, dear. It's better with the black dragons around, I tell you. And it's really all about perspective and energy, Keith. Well, I'm really excited by what I've found out about colors. Super excited. Yeah. One mm. might think colors. What's so interesting about colors? Well, as it turns out, Nick, there's a lot to get excited about. Yeah, it was strange, but in a great way, of course, that you suddenly said last week, let's do a podcast about colors. It's not what I ever expected you to say but care to elaborate on that? Did you get struck down by the universe nudging you or did you just fancy it? Because you know we get universe nudges, right? No, we don't. It doesn't work that way, Nick. <laughs> it does. All right, don't believe me then. But I will be forever trying to convince you otherwise. And as we go through this podcast, maybe you will change your mind. So how are we going to do this? I think you're going to provide the scientific route, aren't you? And what all the experts say. And I'm coming in with a completely different way of looking at colour. So it should be a good mix for everyone listening. Stay tuned. Yeah, I think so. I think mm. it will. Right. But we can't start without tea. So I've made a feast for the senses and the eyes today and hopefully themed it. I can see that. And I can also smell roses. 
Oh, look at this pot. I mean, I wish it was glass, you know, one of those glass pots, because, oh my gosh, it would just look so lovely with all the all the little buds inside, but it's not. But you're absolutely right, Keith. I've got rose petals, rose flowers brewing in there with some fresh mint leaves. There's some fennel seeds and a pinch of raw ginger. And it may sound a bit of a weird combination, but I did get the recipe from one of my Ayurveda um, collaborators. And um, yeah, it's really nice. Hang on, I'm going to... But where's the actual tea? Um, yeah, look, slight change. It's not in there. <laughs> but, what? but just think of this as tea. It's tea. It's, just, just except it's not. It. Well, not in the traditional sense. I grant you that. But tea has expanded massively now. And I think it now actually means anything added to water. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> what that... is now called tea. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense at all. If there's no tea, it's not tea. It's something else. Well, it, like I said, anything added to water, and that is now what tea is. But it depends on how you look at tea, I guess. And the reason I chose this, which, you know, there's always a reason, right, is to help reduce the fiery pitta, the fiery energy in the liver and the body. We're always trying to do that, remember? And that's what all these ingredients together do. So not only does it taste fantastic, it's really good for your body too. And your liver, Keith, is going to be saying, thank you so much. You know? That's like, that's like, you driving a Cadillac and you come up to me and say, what do you think of my Porsche? And I'm like, that's not a Porsche. That's a Cadillac. <laughs> and you're like, no, 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 it's a Porsche. And I'm like, uh, it's not. So this this concoction, you can call it whatever you like, but it ain't tea. If you don't have tea, it ain't tea. Well, yeah. I, I mean, that's a really good example. Hard to argue with that, I have to say, dastardly. Um, but... It depends on what you can think. So if you think you're driving a Porsche, then it's a Porsche. Oh, it's the perception. Mm. So you don't necessarily need a Porsche. You just need to think you're driving a Porsche. Exactly. Like, there are people- so like with this tea, it's not tea, but we just have to think that we're having tea and it's tea. And look, Brilliant. do you know what? Every time you screw your face up at my teas, which happens a lot, I always think back to the time when you made me drink moth poop tea on our insects podcast. Remember that? So this is not exactly a hardship, is it? It's got some roses in there and some peppermint, for goodness sake. Actually, that was a great podcast. It was actually a really popular podcast. I quite like that one. Do you like the tea, by the way? Okay. It's not fruity, so I'm grateful for that. See? It's actually, it's actually quite nice. Not too rosy, not too minty. It's just right. Sounds like um, Goldilocks and Three Bears. <laughs> it does. So, Nick, I'm kicking off this podcast with Isaac Newton. So when he was young, he was fascinated by colours. I don't think a lot of people know that, actually, about Isaac Newton. So let's go back to when Isaac was 23 years old. It's 1665 and he's home for the holidays. The holidays? He's home because there was a plague ravaging Britain. <laughs> yeah, right? okay, there is that. <laughs> but he's in his room famously solving, you know, the various mysteries of the world. And one of the questions that he thinks about during this plague break is colours. As you Where do, do they come from? Maybe, maybe yeah. just an uplifting thing to think about during the plague. Yeah, sure. So he's thinking about, well, where do they come from? And he also thinks, you know, if he sees the colour red, is that red actually inside his head or is it something that exists out there in the world? Hmm, okay. So without a great deal of thought, he actually pokes a knife into his eye. What? <laughs> Why did he do that? <laughs> yeah. And live to tell so the tale? So he says in his... Well, he says in his notebook, he says, I took a bodkin, 
put it but twixt my eye in the bone near to the backside of my eyes, and as I pressed it into the flesh, several large coloured circles appeared. <laughs> Not surprising, was it blood? <laughs> I mean, it's a bit extreme, isn't it? So effectively to see if the colour is actually in his eye. I mean, extreme, yeah, exactly. but yeah, he was extreme. Ex Yes, exactly right. So it's dedication for you. So that, that painful experiment actually led him to not a great deal at all, actually, because seeing spots when you put the point of a knife in your eye doesn't actually tell you whether the colour's there or not. Yeah, it kind of led him to a funky eye patch or something, the very first eye patch. I mean, it does tell you a lot about pain, though, doesn't it? I mean, his experiment, the pain level yeah, of sticking I mean a knife in your eye. It is quite the dedication. But what he managed to do then was get himself a prism, which is just a bit of glass shaped like a pyramid. And it wasn't actually easy for him to get his hands on a prism back in those days. And maybe he actually built it himself. I think he probably did. And then he shut his blinds so that it was totally dark. And then he poked a tiny hole in one of the blinds. And then he waited. Waited. For what exactly? <laughs> well, it was England, so probably waiting for the sun to come one month, one day. <laughs> <laughs> hey, good job he wasn't in Wales. He'd be waiting for a very long time. Yeah, so what he was waiting for was basically for the sun to rise and for it to hit that dot and then to burst into the room through that little dot that he'd just made. So effectively, he was waiting for the sun to, to hit the right angle. Mm, okay, yep. And when the sun got to the right angle, a, uh, a I guess a, a spot of sunlight burst through that, um, that little dot. And what Newton then immediately did was put his prism into the light and an amazing rainbow appeared on the wall. Or in Newton's mm. words, a coloured image of the sun. That's fantastic, isn't it? Coloured image of the sun. Yeah. And Victoria Finlay wrote a book about colour, and she says that the thing to understand about this experiment, Newton's experiment, is that at the time, people believed that white light was only given by God or given by this amazing thing called nature. And, you know, light from the sun was sort of holy. Hmm. I love the light from the sun. It's the best energy we can get. And if there was anything that was pure, it was white light. So when the prism did the rainbow thing, which people knew prisms did, they just figured that the colours were there in the glass. I mean, in other words, the rainbow had nothing to do with the white light that had entered the prism and had reflected out, but there were kind of impurities in the prism itself, which is interesting. And I guess he didn't know if the prism wasn't just generating these colours. Yeah, and that's correct. So he got a second prism and this was the trick. So while the first prism was still making that rainbow on the wall, he moved a few feet away and he held up the second prism in the blue area to see what would happen to the blue light. Would the prism add more colours to the blue light or would it just be transformed in some other way? And what he found was nothing happens. It just remains blue. Okay, so he thought if the blue light wasn't getting mudded by the prism, then maybe the prism wasn't muddying the white light to begin with. Maybe that rainbow of colours was actually coming from inside the white light. Exactement. So he actually inferred that the first prism was dividing light into its constituent parts, which means that the white light we see around us, and this I find this amazing, is actually constituted of all these colours. So the colours are actually in the light. They are the light. And effectively, he had his answer. Light is a physical thing in a physical world. You can tweak it, you can test it, you can study it, you can pinch it. Um, but this is actually the beginning of everything we know about light today. 
Wow, everything has to start somewhere and it usually starts with an inquisitable mind. Newton is a cool dude. He is a genius. Newton actually put us on the road towards finding ultraviolet rays, X-rays, radio waves, and these energies of light and colors are energies within that little sliver of light that burst out of his prism. That little ray of light has led us to understanding the greenhouse effect, for example, and to knowing what the stars are made of, even the age of our universe. Amazing. Oh, I, I love the stars, Keith. I love the stars. I mean, the concept of looking back in time every time we look at a star or a planet blows my mind. Me too. But interestingly, not everybody was pleased by Newton's discovery. John Keats, the romantic poet, was actually really cross with him and said that he reduced or removed all the poetry from the rainbow. Yeah, I mean, quite right too. I mean, the downside of analysing everything within an inch of its life, it takes the fun out of it, right? It can't become, it can't create, it can't blossom into something amazingly awesome because there's an upper limit put on it, right? Bias science. <laughs> My favorite yeah, kind it, of people. I don't see it that way. And I and without scientists, we wouldn't be where we are today. But I take your point. But actually, the real challenge to, to Newton's view of color came from another poet by the name of Goethe. Yeah, that's true. I know this story, actually. So one day he's walking in the park and he spots these yellow crocuses. And he looks at the yellow crocuses and admires their beautiful petals. And it's early spring and they're blooming and they're all beautiful and gorgeous. And then quickly he turns away. And in an instant, he suddenly sees a dash of violet across his eyes. He still sees the shape of the flower, but now it's violet. So it's mm -hmm. the opposite of yellow. I mean, he hadn't rubbed his eye. He hadn't stuck a needle in it. And yet there it was. It, you know, it seemed just as real as the yellow crocus. Yet he knew it wasn't real. It came from inside his mind. And it was, you know, we've all hallucinated colors, I suppose, haven't we? Yeah, um, yeah, of course. I mean, you can actually press on your eyeball or close your eyes and you see, you know, kind of fireworks. Ah. But Goethe's, Goethe's simple, you know, observation led him to think that maybe our perception of colours begins in the world and then finishes inside the mind. Maybe we should add a disclaimer here. Don't stick your fingers in your eyes or <laughs> don't stick knives <laughs> no. in your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <clears throat> but I think the don't really do cool this thing at is home, that folks. <laughs> the cool thing is that hundreds of years later, um, you know, this is still an open question. You know, a scientist can actually say that color has an objective reality, but the colors we see are tricks of the imagination. And there is no perfectly objective view of color. I personally like to keep both of those opinions in my mind at the same time. Me too. An open mind is always good. And Jasper is vigorously nodding. So that's a me three. <laughs> so the question is, where is color? Is it in? Is it out? I mean, that's the question we're going to explore through the eyes of a butterfly uh, with a woman who can see colors the rest of us can only dream of. And we'll go back in time when the sea apparently looks like a dark red wine. Nick, we're about to get colorful. Great. Loving the enthusiasm over here. So before we get into that, this is one for the listeners at home. So look at what color you're wearing today. It says a lot about not only your state of mind in the present, but also what you might need to get you through the day. What colour did you okay. choose when you wearily, tired eyes got out of bed this morning and you grabbed for what? What colours? Okay, so I'm wearing dark blue. So what does that tell you? Ah, we like dark blue. Dark blue is the energy of Archangel Michael. It's also the energy of the throat chakra before it moves into the higher dimensions. So it's your communication centre, Keith. 
And that would make sense because we're on a podcast. <laughs> you do wear a lot of blue, though, I have to say. Yeah, I have to Loads. say it's my favourite colour. I'm a communicator, Nick. So what's yours? <laughs> OK, well, mine changes with the wind, actually. I tend not to wear black. It's not a happy colour for me. And I'm an empath, as you know, which can feel like going into battle every day. So I tend to wear lighter colours. But with summer coming in, whites, creams, beige are cooling colours, while yellow, pink, orange, royal blue, vibrant green and shades of purple are all extremely uplifting. You know, they give a bit of zing, oomph, pizzazz. <laughs> You're not going to tap dance, are you? <laughs> no, why? <laughs> I don't know. Your energy is up. Your arms are flailing and... There's a bit of tap-toeing going on, so I thought it'd fit right in. You jest, Keith, but it might be the yellow, you know. It might be zinging me up. Yeah, let's go with that. So uh, back to anyone listening to this show, your colour choices say a lot about your life. And did you know that you can attract opportunities and a better day to you just by the colour you are wearing? I kind of... I think I knew that, but I, maybe I didn't know that. I've, I, it's in the back of my mind. It, it actually rings a bell. But that actually goes for, you know, when you're going for interviews, you've got to wear certain colors, right? Because certain colors attract and, you know, disarm interviewers, all that kind of stuff. I mean, you're in HR, you know this kind of stuff. Yeah, that's an interesting thing to bring up because I would say that black is the very worst color you can wear. And yet, particularly in Asia, everyone wears black to an interview and it seems to be the accepted corporate you know, depressing colour that everyone wears. But really, at an interview, you want to shine. You want all mm. these great things to come out. And it doesn't, black is really not, apart from the divine feminine black dragons, um, it's not an energy-infused colour, I would say. So that that's an that's a interesting example because that yeah, is exactly of... when you need a bit of yellow. But of course, if you walked into an interview wearing a bright yellow suit, you know, you might be told that you've got the wrong room the wrong day and goodbye, we'll give you a call. You know, that's Look, just kind can, of how it works. I can tell you a story once. My first interview, I actually wore a brown suit and white shoes into the city of London. <laughs> and, I, and I had no idea. But hang on, was it a job in finance or was it in a flower shop? Because that makes a difference as well. You know, was was it in Ollivander's wand shop? Because that would be okay, the blue suit and the white shoes. No, it was a job in finance and um, (laughs) the the, the HR Uh -uh. guy was, was super cool. He didn't mention anything about it until the end. And, um, and then they offered me the job. And then as I was leaving, he said, uh, can we have a chat? And I said, sure. And he said, uh, the white shoes. I'm like, yeah, do you like them? He's like, maybe in a different context. <laughs> but I actually had no idea. But I still got the job. So obviously it was my flowery personality shining through. Give me an example. Tell me, tell me something about colour. Um, all right. Well, look, if, if you're in a life that's very up and down, right, a lot of us are kind of, you know, like we're in a hurricane right now trying to find central gravity, right? Um, maybe you're going through a tough relationship or going through exams because the teens are going through exams right now, or you're letting go of something or big changes are happening, right? Very, very common at the moment because we're all being thrown off the path we thought we were on to get onto the path we should be on. But, um, you know, it can it can make us feel a little bit anxious. You know, we don't know what's in the future. Our adrenals are being spiked a lot. Um Then you might be drawn to calming, cooling, soothing, grounding colors, right? Like the earth colors, brown, terracotta, beige, creams, they ground you. 
And then light blues, greens are very soothing. I mean, they, they don't okay. say that green is the, the color of healing by accident, right? When you look at green, green fields, green grass, green leaves, it's very, very calming, very soothing, you know? And then, of course, on the other end of spectrum, you might have had enough of the last three years and gone, yeah, I've had enough of that. Um, you know, this whole topsy-turvy world we've been in. And you might be really coming into your own now and thinking, right, I've just got to live my life and I'm going to burst forward and give it my all with lots of energy. Then you might be exploring, you know, the vibrant pinks, the turquoises, the oranges, purples, neons, you know, those types mm -hmm. of colors. And I mean, Keith, look, it takes a certain kind of person to go out wearing a neon yellow suit, for example, right? But, you know, that's where a lot of people are now, blasting forward with full confidence and a knowing of what they need to be doing in this world. And look, if that's anybody out there listening, that's fantastic. Just go for it. You look amazing. I was before my time, clearly. Brown suits and white shoes they were in. So a neon, you know, and, and a neon yellow suit for me actually says confidence. I like that idea. Yeah. So if you, if you wake up feeling like you want to go back to bed and not start the day, what you're saying is instead of reaching for something black that may match your, your current mood, you could reach <laughs> for something brighter or calmer that will actually uplift your mood. Yeah, exactly. To pull you out of it, right? It really, really works. So try it at home and see how you get on. You heard it here first. Mm. So Nick, back to neuroscientists. They've got some interesting things to say about colour. Oh, I bet they do. So one of the sorts of debates that becomes interesting is where is the colour? Is it out there? I mean, when you are holding a strawberry, as an example, is it red for everything that sees that strawberry? A bee, a whale, an elephant? Does it exist in a way that you could pin it down outside of me? Or does it only get to be red when it gets into my head? Now, that would be intriguing to explore. Does a strawberry look the same to a human as it does to a cat, for instance? Like, does my cat see the red strawberry that I had in my smoothie this morning? I don't know. Well, I think another, I think another way to, a more severe way to ask this and maybe access that answer would be, if an alien landed here tomorrow, would they see the strawberry as red? And the answer is almost surely no. You know, even your dog wouldn't see it as red because your dog has the color vision of blue, yellow and black, white. So what do the scientists say the world looks like to a dog? Well, 10% of men are colorblind and that's roughly what it's like being a dog. The colorblind don't see the world in black and white. They actually see it in color, but they have a very narrowed color perception. So to them, colors lie a lot closer to each other and they're not as vibrant or as bright as someone who isn't colorblind would see it. Mm, okay. So here's the question. If a dog and a human and a crow were to be staring at a rainbow, are they seeing very different things? Hmm. I don't think so. I mean, what are they say? What are they seeing? Well, so a rainbow to us is Roy Begin, or as I remember the colors from a kid using this acronym, acronym, Richard of York gained battle in vain. So effectively, the rainbow is red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet. Oh, I, I haven't heard of that one, Richard of York. So I think I did the Mary Poppins song. Oh, actually, was it The Sound of Music? Or maybe it's Doris Day. It was one of those. Anyway, I can't remember. But it did the job. It was a song, but I'm not going to sing it. And you know, visual eco ecologists say that humans see seven colors in the rainbow. So in the case of a dog, they will see a very different rainbow to what we see. For them, it's going to start off blue 
and they see blue just fine. And then it will gradually fade off to green and then it will just disappear, maybe with a smidge of yellow thrown in. So their rainbow will only be about as half as thick as ours. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's that's quite amazing to actually think about. You know, we think all the world sees the same thing, but we really don't. Hmm. It's not the best rainbow if you're a dog, I guess. I mean, what is it about the dog's eye that makes it see the world this way? Well, it doesn't have red-sensitive photoreceptors or red-sensitive cones. The weird thing is, is that the difference between dogs and us cone-wise is only one, right? They have cones turned to blue and green, so do we. Yeah. We have this one extra red, which really doesn't seem to make a big difference. I mean, it's just one cone. But to have three is so much better than two. Yeah, three is definitely better than two. And it's because of this kind of multiple layered thing. You know, red can get mixed with blue, which makes it purple, or red can get mixed with yellow to make it orange, and green gets mixed with blue to make it turquoise. And that's how we get about 100 different shades for the colors that we can see. So by adding one photopigment instead of adding just one more color, you actually add about, what, 98 colors or so? Yeah, maybe even more. I mean, um, let's look. Let's move on a little bit and just look at sparrows, Nick, just as an example. So did you know that sparrows actually have ultraviolet vision? I did not know that. So what do they see? Well, so their rainbow would actually start before our rainbow, way before our rainbow. Where we just see sky, a, par a sparrow would actually see an ultraviolet color, and then it would see the violet, and then the blue, and then the greens, and the oranges, and the reds. And then it would probably see further into the redness because they have a redder sensitive red sensor than we do. So they would see a much brighter rainbow than us, effectively, right? It would start early and it yeah. would end later. Yeah. Okay. So we should assume then that the sparrow is the champion of color. <laughs> Only if we're talking about vertebrates. No, I'm talking about anything that has a heart and a mind. And many animals have much better color vision than the vertebrates. I mean, butterflies, for instance, we covered them earlier in the year in our butterfly podcast, have five or six kinds of color receptors. I remember that. And we only have three. Yeah, well remembered, Nick. But butter and butterflies actually see more colors than we do, way more. So if a butterfly is looking at a rainbow, they would see colors that we actually have no names for in between the blues and the greens and the greens and the yellows. So they would start probably at ultraviolet and then they would get to violet, then blue, blue, green, then green, green, blue, bluey, or whatever, and then orange and red and, you know, all of the above. And they have super complicated eyes. Um, I mean, I think they really do though, right? So just to recap, here's the dog, then us humans, then the sparrow, and finally the butterfly. So do butterflies now get the colour seeing crown? Are they the champions? <laughs> well, no, because then you go under coral reefs and you come across these amazing things called mantis shrimps. And ah. they actually look like a praying mantis. And the mantis shrimp actually catches its prey by using an arm like a praying mantis. Um, and they can be pretty small, about the size of your finger, but they can also be pretty big, like the size of your forearm. Yeah, you guys should look them up. They are so colourful. It's like they're electric coloured, turquoise or something, iridescent, and their eyes are like cartoon eyes, right? They're gigantic relative to their bodies. Yeah, they have two really big eyes right out front. And you said that dogs have two cones and we have three. How much does a butterfly have again? Butterflies have five, uh, and it okay. depends on the butterfly because there are 17,500 different species. Right. And the mantis shrimps? They have 16. 16? Wow. 
Yeah, 16 kinds of receptors. Okay, so back to the rainbow. What does it look to a mantis shrimp? Hang on, can they actually see a rainbow from where they live, though? They would see it fine because they live in very shallow water and the water is actually pretty clear, almost like air. So they would actually start the rainbow way, way, way inside. You know, So where we see violet, they would see deep, deep ultraviolet. And then they would go through several layers of ultraviolet, maybe five or six kinds of ultraviolet. Then they would get to violet, reaching effectively what we can see. And then the blues and the deep blues. And then they would migrate to reds. Um, about as red as what we can see and, you know, so on and so forth. Wow, what an amazing rainbow that would be. I want to see that rainbow. So they basically go through all the shades. So it's different variations of each of those colours that they're able to see, whereas we can't see all those shades. Yeah, look, they've got the most complicated visual system of any creature on Earth by a factor of two or more. So if you're actually looking at crowns, they take the colour crown. Woohoo! But you know, on the other hand, their brains are <laughs> tiny, so who knows? They may not have any ability to perceive the beauty of the rainbow in the way we do. And they're really into the violence of things, those mantis shrimps. I mean, that's what they do. It's just one of the reasons they are so fascinating. Yeah, they, they really are. And they just kill things. Uh, you know, they, they kill things like crabs. Uh, they kill yep. other mantis shrimp, other shrimps, small octopuses. Um, and they can actually break the wall of an aquarium with one punch. Gosh, I mean, the Mike Tyson of the sea going rogue with a visual sense unlike any other. I mean, that's incredible. And I actually didn't know about breaking the wall of an aquarium until you just said that. Yeah, it's it, they're stunningly, you know, colourful creatures in, in every sense of the world. So Justin Marshall is a marine biologist and a neuroscientist, and he actually works on the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, a place that I've dived many, many times. And just for context, Justin is the guy, the man, who basically put the mantis on the map. Uh, now, I read about him, actually. He was the first guy to notice that they saw colour. And that was when he was at the University of Sussex in about 95, I think. And there was such a fab story attached to this. Oh, yeah, this is a great story. So apparently he had a colleague from West Africa walk into his lab who was wearing a particular dress, you know, a wonderfully colourful traditional dress. Gorgeous. And she walks yeah. in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she walks in uh, into his lab where he's got all these aquariums set up and immediately all the mantis um, uh, shrimps literally rushed to the front of their tanks and they went wild. <laughs> and they were waving their appendages and they're showing off their colors. It's like, woohoo! And basically saying <laughs> things to her which would be entirely inappropriate. Yeah. Look, I read that piece of research as well. They were completely turned on, weren't they? Yeah. So, so he knew at that stage that they could see colors that we couldn't see and a lot more than we first thought. But even though they have these amazing eyes, they don't know how to use them in the same way that we do. Yeah, I know. And I, I don't really understand that. And I, and I guess this is where you need to start thinking about colour and what colours are. I mean, the thing to understand is that you don't actually see colour with your eyes. Hey, up. That's a bold statement. You're going to have to explain that one a bit more, Keith. <laughs> Well, you're taking the light in with your eyes, obviously, but then the color is received in your brain. And mm, mantises okay. have these tiny, tiny brains that don't seem to process color the same way that our brains do. This is true. The way in which we see color is if, so I, you know, I see somebody wearing a blue sweater walking down the street, my blue photoreceptor in my eye gets really excited. Yes, I do like the color blue. So your brain is going to see that they are wearing a blue sweater. 
Right. Now, if that blue sweater had a little bit of red in it, the red photoreceptor in your eye would actually get excited, but not as loudly um, as the blue one. And actually, the ratio for you know these excitations that gives my brain the sensation of color would be activated as well. So the brain basically says, okay, we've got a lot of blue, but a little bit of red. What would that be? The brain then processes that as magenta. And that's what you end up seeing like your brain sort of paints the gap in between. And that's how every animal on the planet sees color apart from the mantis shrimp. I mean, that blows my mind, actually. It's really fascinating. Who knew? I mean, who knew? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's brain, it, the mantis shrimp's brain doesn't seem that interested in painting the gaps like our brains do. So back in the segment a little bit earlier where we said that it sees a full-throated, wide-voiced spectrum of color, you know, just ecstatic, you know, glorious, uh, a vision of rainbow that we'd never, ever see, that we would never, ever see, you know, in our lifetimes, you know, the best of any creature on earth, we maybe have to amend that. <laughs> So they still see colors that we don't see, but they might not just be seeing as many colors as we thought. Like maybe their rainbow is more a series of kind of rather focused, discrete bands of color with not a lot in between. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? So they're given these amazing receptors, but they don't know how to use them to see all the colors. Well, it seems that they use them to communicate with each other. So they actually talk in colors. They don't talk with voices. They talk in colors. And as it happens, they don't need all the colors that they can actually see. So they only use the ones that are useful to them uh, to breed and to eat. Remember, tiny, tiny brains. Tiny, tiny brains. But wouldn't it be great to talk in color? We should try that, Keith, one day. We should talk in color. <laughs> Shortest so conversation in the world. <laughs> Yeah, maybe, maybe. We might add the dog as well. It would be an ultra short conversation. So mm -hmm. they see ultraviolet and maybe a shade of that UV will mean don't go there, a warning. Another might mean I like you a lot. Let's have sex. Another might mean home, safety, I'm safe. I mean, it varies species to species. And remember, we're talking about a whole range of at least 500 species that talk differently. Yeah. So it's kind of a blanket statement or a blanket explanation, but I think it works. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. So what you're saying is that instead of seeing rainbows like we do, they're having a conversation with a code. Yeah. The colors are actually their vocabulary. You know, they have all these rods and cones so they can actually talk to the world, not so they can actually see the beauty of the world. And this is really complicated, but they can also see polarized light, which is really, really hard to explain. But it's thought that some species of this shrimp can actually flash polarized light at each other as a way of communicating. Oh, it's incredible, isn't it? It's, it really is. So they're unbelievably amazing and fascinating creatures, and they're totally different from any other animal on the planet. So you've got to ask yourself the question, why? And biologists and neuroscientists have been asking that question for 30 years, and they still don't have the answer. Uh, maybe because every species, including us, are constantly evolving. So the scientists can't keep up, right? Because hmm, they look at things differently. Some non-scientists, like children even, they know a ton of information and are here to propel our thinking and the way we perceive things completely on its head and move forward. I love that. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. And look at energy. I mean, it took centuries before scientists admitted that there are auras or energy fields around our bodies, right? And so many people believed it, but then not everyone believed it because scientists hadn't said 
right? So with the invention of orb photography as well, that's amazing, right? We now see circles of light that we know to be etheric beings on their journey. There are people that interpret these orbs. And Keith, there's now a lot of evidence written and captured on this topic. So even now the scientists have caught up. But 20 years ago, not a chance. No one would have believed it because the scientists didn't state it first. Yeah, good point. I mean, I sometimes get orbs in the pictures that, you know, that I take. They're kind of, yeah. I guess they're, they're colours of, circles of colour. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that's them. I mean, I always feel very lucky when, it, when an orb pops into one of my photographs. And if you take pictures of the sky, particularly at night, you will often see circles, sometimes hundreds of them. You don't see them with your eyes, but when you take a picture, it then magnifies them and you can see them. Orbs are fab. And if you look online, you will see hmm. amazing photos that people have taken. And if you want to discover more about them, then check out a book by Diana Cooper. She wrote a brilliant book on them. So, um, yeah, look, sorry, <laughs> I got off topic there a bit. You know what I'm like. You were talking about flashing polarized light. <laughs> Let's carry on I with was, that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, um, flashing polarized light is actually called umwelt. And every animal in the world lives by its senses, and its world makes sense using those senses. And try as you will, you will never know. You know, we're never going to know what a what a bat actually sees, thinks, or hears, unless you're actually a bat. And we're never going to know what an elephant sees when it looks out. And we also know that deer don't see oranges, and that's why, <laughs> as in not in apple and oranges, but orange is the color. They don't see oranges, <laughs> and that's why hunters wear orange and yellow vests because a deer's eyes don't have that range. But the question is, do they then see something else? We'll never know. Do they see more of something else? But actually, Keith, going back, what does amwelt actually mean? Never heard of it. Oh, it's a great word. Yeah, it's a great word. Uh, it basically says that you're limited by what you can feel, touch, smell, and see. So on some level, I mean, I feel like that's a problem that exists even between people. Like I regularly have moments with my friends where I'm like, that's not blue. And they will be like, yeah, it is. It's totally blue. Well, just like us at the beginning, I thought you were wearing black and you were wearing navy. I'm a bit colorblind though with certain yeah. colors. <laughs> what about yellow, Nick? Ha ha, I can see yellow just fine and most of the other colors. <laughs> I have difficulty with shades. Okay, so dark brown, dark navy and black. It just all looks the same to me. It just blends as one in my eyes. And weirdly, gray mm -hmm. and aqua. Gray and aqua. Okay, mm. that is weird. And gray and green. Yeah. Do you know, I bought a pair of sketches trainers once and in the shop, they were the coolest shade of aqua. And I thought, oh, and it was the time when, you know, trainers weren't that color. That should have been a clue. And I was raving about them to my daughter, who sadly wasn't with me when I bought them. And then later when I pulled them out of the box, she said, I think they gave you the wrong color, mum. Those are gray. And I really couldn't see it. They still looked aqua to me. I mean, I'm the hmm. same with some shades of teal and gray too. Everything else I think I'm fine with, but those, <laughs> I can't, can't tell them apart. So you have a wardrobe full of gray then? <laughs> yeah, I would <laughs> if it wasn't for my daughter. <laughs> I see, I have to, like if I see something that's green or aqua, you know, in that sort of shade range, I have to take a picture and then I send it to my daughter. <laughs> 
<laughs> she tells me whether oh it's grey or green. I know it's drastic, but I have to <laughs> do that. And nine times out of 10, she comes back with, it's grey. Don't get it. <laughs> wow. So, um, but actually, one of my parents is colorblind with certain colors and it's hereditary, isn't it? Yeah, it apparently is. And there's a, there's a really interesting story coming up. So listeners, stay with us. Ooh. So did you also know that what they can do now is uh, for colorblind, just on mentioning that, um, they can actually take a serum and they can inject it into monkeys' eyes and that actually allows the monkeys to see red. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Yeah, I mean, they, they can't see red, but this actually allows the monkeys to identify red fruits. So theoretically, so it's helpful for them, but you think then theoretically they could do that with colorblind humans. Oh my gosh, not a chance. Thank you very much. And poor monkeys. Yeah, well, luckily for you, Nick, in America, for instance, the FDA hasn't seen enough testing to allow that to happen. So with that theory in mind, could they then take other serums and inject into us to allow us to see everything that a mantis shrimp can see? Theoretically, sure. Why not? Mm, one day, maybe. But keep that thought, Nick, because you just raised another issue. There are actually coloured mutants walking among us. Goodness, you do love your statements today, Keith. You'll have to elaborate on that one, please. <laughs> no, so here's the deal, right? So the genes for the cones in our eyes uh, that see colour, you know, the green and the blues, um, is actually in the X chromosome. Now, men, as we know, only have one of these, and women actually have two X chromosomes, which means that women have two sets of these cone-making genes. So normally one of them is actually just a spare. Um, it's not used. It's actually there. Um, but then someone at one of the universities said, you know what, theoretically, it's possible that some women are using this spare set of genes and this could actually morph into a whole new one, a fourth cone. Well, Keith, women are amazing. What do you expect? <laughs> yes, they are. And scientists actually call this the yellow cone. So people with normal color vision are called trichromatic because we've got three cones. A woman like that would actually be called tetrachromatic. So altogether, she would have, I guess she would have a blue cone, a green cone, a yellow cone, and a red cone. But she wouldn't just see more yellow. I mean, this new yellow would mix with the red and the blue and the green to create thousands, maybe millions of more shades of color. Amazing. Yeah, it, it really is. And I guess technicolor, maybe te technicolor is not the right word. I, I think it would be super duper. Super duper. Yes. So how did this come about and how did they find anyone with it? Or did they find anyone with it? Yeah. So these guys actually figured out a way to test for this. It seems that we can actually look in people's blood and we can actually see if a woman has the genes of blue cones, green cones, yellow cones and red cones. Like a DNA test? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So tell me more. Tell me more, you say. I will. <laughs> <laughs> so they started doing blood tests and they found this one woman. And weirdly, she worked at the same place that they did. So incredibly serendipitous. And they looked at her DNA and they saw the gene for the fourth cone. Hmm. So did she see in super duper technicolor or I don't know, how would you even know? Well, that was the problem. And they thought of an experiment in order to be able to see whether or not she had this extra dimension of color. And the scientists were able to produce these two yellow lights, um, you know, something that um, trichromats like us would see as normal. I read about tetrachromats. A woman with this fourth cone would see totally differently if she was using it, of course, if it wasn't dormant. Yeah, if she was using it. So they brought this woman in and they said, okay, here it is. 
uh, here's these two two different versions of yellow. And they said, you know, can you see the difference? And everyone got really excited. And she said, no, <laughs> I don't see any difference. <laughs> okay. So end of experiment. We can all go home. <laughs> Is there anything <laughs> else to that? You'd think so, right? But yes and no. So the story doesn't end there, thankfully. So a good colleague of theirs in England at the University of Newcastle by the name of Gabrielle Jordan apparently found eight of these women with the extra cone. And out of these eight, seven of those women behaved exactly like the person that they just tested back in the US and couldn't see the difference. But get this, one of them took one look at those two yellows and said, hey, they look completely different. Okay, so one of the women saw the difference. So one of them had the cone and could use it, and the others had the cone but couldn't use it. So why is that? Correct. And it, is it a conscious thing, you know, whether you can use it or not? Can you just, like, if I, would I know I had the four cones now? Well, obviously not because I can't see grey and aqua. But if I had the four cones, would I be able to just go, fourth cone, switch on, please? Like, how do you, I don't know, <laughs> initiate it? So, yeah, it's a good... <laughs> Yeah, look, it's a good question. You know, why is that? So this is the part um, where I can actually tell you my theory of what's going on, because I've researched this to the nth degree and I have a plan. I don't discount that for a minute. All right, then. Off you go. The Hockton theory is. OK, so this is exciting. So imagine you grew up in a world without colour. Wait, OK, right off the bat, I'm not loving the Hockton theory. <laughs> Hang on, stay with me on this. So you okay. live in a completely, totally black and white world. Houses would be painted black and white. Printers would only print in black and white. Even the TV would just be black and white. Ooh. Women's makeup would be black and white. So it actually wouldn't make any difference if you had color vision or not, because you would never use that color vision. You following? Gosh, what a dread! I'm following. What a dreadful world. But I guess in that context, no names for each color either, right? You wouldn't need them. No, but just imagine this. So imagine that world, and then just to make it interesting, let's imagine one day a bright red apple pops into your world. How would you react to it? Would you even see it? Ah, okay. Now that's a very good question. Maybe even though you have the ability to see that red apple, if you've never had a chance to use that ability and kind of develop and flex it, that cone, maybe it would just lay dormant. Yeah. And maybe that's what happens to women with the extra cone. They very rarely get subjected to colors that would stimulate that extra cone. So those yeah, are right. the colors. Yeah. I mean, they're just not around enough for them, is it? Is, I mean, is that the deal? Yeah, I think so. So everything that we make is based on the fact that humans are trichromatic. You know, television only has three colors. Color printers uh, have three different colors. There is nothing out there that we make artificially that people with four cones could actually see. And that's the important thing. Ah. But maybe some women, because they're just more aware or because of the job that they do, maybe uh, it's a woman who works, uh, you know, with color, you know, all the time, like a florist or a painter, you know, little by little, because they're paying such close attention, their brain would actually learn to see that differently. Okay, so for all the women listening to this, you might have four cones. Try it out to see what colours you can see and what someone around you you can see. Like do a bit of a compare contrast type thing. I know I don't have four cones, but maybe you do. Yeah, good point. And look, naturally, everybody wants to find one of these mythic women, you know, the one out of eight that we talked about. And what's interesting is when you start researching it on the net, the net is actually full of these sites asking for these women. Basically, if you are a tetrachromat, contact us. 
It's a little like chasing a unicorn. <laughs> oh, we love chasing unicorns, Keith. And lots of people see them, particularly children. So maybe you should change that too. It's a bit like seeing a rainbow polka dot unicorn with silver hair. <laughs> I'm sure there would be someone out there who would see that unicorn, Nick. <laughs> I don't doubt it. But guess what, Nick? They actually found one. A polka dot unicorn? Goodness, that was quick. <laughs> no, a woman that can use all four cones. Well, that's really something. Tell us more. Well, she's actually an interior designer, but they hadn't yet determined whether she could actually use her fourth cone. So they sent the scientists to Pittsburgh, where she lives. Um, her name is Susan Hogan. Uh, hi, Susan. Big friend of the show. And she's a mother <laughs> of three. Uh, she spoke a lot about how she uses color in her work um, because, you know, she uses color a lot. She uses paints. Um, you know, she paints walls and she says that, and you know, and one of the amazing things is that she says that depending on how the sun enters a room, each wall will look totally different. And that's interesting. Susan. That's an interesting <laughs> statement just by itself. So in any case, their plan involved these little pieces of brown fabric, um, which to the scientists actually looked identical. And to Susan, they actually looked the same as well. No one could actually tell the difference, but they weren't the same. So if you showed them to a functioning uh, tetrachromat, they would be able to see the difference. The subtle differences that you, know, that you and I as a trichromat wouldn't be able to see. But how did they test her then? Like, how did they prove that? So they ended up walking outside in a garden, you know, where there were lots of trees and greens and, and you know, various different shades of, of greens, etc. And one scientist um, pulled out three swatches of cloth. She couldn't see it. She, he was behind a tree when, she, when he did it. You know, two were actually the same and one had a very, very, very minor subtle difference. And he brought them over to her and said, what do you see? She immediately said, number three is different. It's more neutral and less red. And she was correct. So he then turned wow. his back again, went back behind the tree, changed them around, and then added one more, and then showed them to her again and asked which one was the different one. And she picked it out again, straight away. So he turned his back again and made all three swatches different and showed them to her again. And again, she absolutely nailed it. She could see that all three were different, whereas everyone else, every, even the scientists, everyone else said they were exactly the same. Utterly fascinating that. I mean, do you know what that makes me do, want to do now is to go outside and try that. <laughs> My little swatches of colour. <laughs> but there was one moment um, at the end of the experiment when she was just kind of staring into the sky, you know, with a very, you know, kind of sly smile on her face. And it was a clear blue day, not a cloud to be seen. And she was just intently staring. So the scientists there actually asked her what she could see. And she said, well, I see a lot of the pinks and the blues. And there's a lot of red in the in the sky. She was looking at a clear blue sky, what, laced with tinges of red? Yeah, no one else could see it. It was a perfectly blue sky. So they asked okay. her specifically where the red was. And she said, it's everywhere. It's just mixed up in, in the entire sky. Gosh, I'm just thinking of the sunsets that I see, because that's my favourite thing in the world, the sunsets and also the stars. And I just wonder whether someone with four cones, like what they would see. It'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah, totally. Yeah, they would see that's the kind of sunrise that you really want to, or sunset you really want to see. Sunrise, sunset, you, you'd love to be able to see it through their eyes. Yeah, so definitely. there's a book that I found called Through the Language Glass by Guy Deutscher. And he's a rare cat. You know, he's, a, he's an academic um, who talks good sense about linguistics. And he argues in a playful and kind of provocative way that 
our mother tongue doesn't, you know, it actually affects how we think and just as important how we actually perceive the world. So the question is, does language reflect the culture of a society? Hmm. Assuming he's a human and actually not a cat, he sounds like a cool guy with a thought-provoking theory in the making. Yeah, he really is. But he tells this uh, this one particular story. It's a, it's a great story, and it starts in 1858 with William Gladstone, uh, who was this incredibly famous you know, politician um, in England. And he was four times prime minister, you know, highly revered um, in the second half of the, the 19th century. And even now, every school kid in, in the United Kingdom kind of knows who this guy is. But there's one thing that not many people know about Gladstone. So Gladstone's a deeply religious man, and he's completely devoted to Homer. You know, for him, the Iliad and the Odyssey were like a second appendage. appendage. He had it on him every day. He read it every day, and he read it over and over again. God, that's dedication, isn't it? I mean, I don't know, maybe not dedication. Maybe it's a kind of strange fascination. Yeah, he was totally besotted with with Homer. So early on in his career, Gladstone actually decided to write the definitive history of Homer. And it's a massive book. It's actually three books. They made it into three books. It was such a big book. And it's thousands of pages where he discussed a whole range of issues relating to Homer and Homer's work. And here's the thing. As he was reading, doing his research and everything, he made this very strange observation and discovery about the way Homer talks about color in the Iliad and the Odyssey. And it's extremely bloody odd. Okay, why? Well, to start with, he uses extremely strange language colors of simple objects. And the most famous one, perhaps, is the wine dark sea. Yeah, the wine dark sea sounds like a poetic kind of thing. Yeah, that's what you would naturally think, right? But the other thing he calls wine colored are his oxen. Um, so it's it's more than just wine. And then he talks about the rams, you know, running around the, 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 the fields and the sheep that surround his property of being violet. I love how he sees things. Violet sheep, I'm there. <laughs> yeah, what's he smoking? And then he talks about his iron kettle being violet and he talks about honey being green. And he didn't call his forests green either. So everything about the way Homer sees objects around him is just wrong. It's just weird. Um, and this is actually really puzzling to Gladstone. So he actually starts going through the Iliad and the Odyssey, and he starts to connect the times, uh, sorry, count the times each color appears. Um, and it only takes him a few pages to notice that the, there's a predominance of black and white. And that color is actually, those two colors are actually used 270 times. Red is used 13 times, yellow about 10 or so, green about the same. And it's then that Gladstone realizes something crazy. The color blue isn't mentioned at all. At all? I mean, he never mentions blue at all? Never. No blue. And then he, he decided to look at all of the, the other texts by Homer um, that Homer had written. And the conclusion that the Gladstone came to was that Homer was actually colorblind. But I mean, that's not so strange. But get this, Nick. Every Greek of that era was colorblind. That's a statement right there. Well, all of them, every Greek. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah all of them. Yeah, all of them. So they actually saw the world, and I'll explain to you a little bit later why, but they actually saw the world in black and white, maybe with a touch of red. But here's the thing. Every generation after Homer could see a little bit more color. And Gladstone's theory was that the, the entire human race were colorblind at this stage. But as, the, as we progressed, the world gradually got color. Hmm, that actually makes sense. 
in my world, the evolution of things. So every generation for the next 3,000 years to the present day gradually got better. Yep, I get that. Yeah, so that's effectively right. So that being said, when Gladstone released this news, you know, to the world, basically, he announced it and he's, you know, this highly venerated man. Weirdly, no one took him seriously. But here's the really interesting thing. Ten years after this Gladstone, you know, Gladstone's announcement, uh, the Homer announcement, this other guy called Lazarus Geiger, uh, a, a philologist, <laughs> which I actually thought was a linguist, linguist but he isn't. Um, this is a guy who actually studies ancient texts. I mean, philologist. <laughs> Goodness. But he was really interesting because he came out and pretty much said all the weird stuff that Gladstone did and, you know, what he discovered. Um, he decided that he was actually going to investigate this. And what he found was he found it everywhere, not just in the text from Greece, but in every ancient text he studied. So he looked at old Icelandic sagas. He looked at ancient Chinese texts. He looked at ancient Vedic hymns. He looked at the Bible, the Torah, and surprise, surprise, it's going to knock your socks off. No blue mentioned anywhere. Oh, that's wild, isn't it? I mean, it's triggering me slightly to go back and research it all for myself. It's just so hard to believe. Yeah. So Geiger then decided to look at when blue was first mentioned. So he traced it back. So first, every language has black and white, every single language. Then red always comes first. And this, as I said, it's in every language. Then yellow, then green, and blue only at the very end. And that's universal? Yeah. What's interesting is that red is always first and blue is always last. Why? Actually, let me have a guess. So I think that it might have to do with a couple of things. First, in Homer's world, and I'm going to emphasize that point because I know what you're going to think when I say Homer would probably never have been exposed to blue. But blue was rare in nature back then. We can't forget that. No blue foods, no blue plants. Even flowers that are extremely blue are very rare and they don't grow in Greece. When we see blue flowers now, these days, they're most likely genetically made that way. Yeah, that's true. And blue eyes were in pretty short supply at that time in Greece as well. And Geiger then says that you don't, actually, you don't need a name for a color until you actually need that color. And red? Well, I mean, red's the easiest color to make, right? I mean, you you can literally just take a dried piece of clay and use it as a as a crayon, which is why paints that were made of ochre go back almost 60,000 years. So this will blow your mind, right? Out of all the texts you mentioned, Keith, you didn't mention him reading Egyptian scrolls. And that's because they Ooh, were the only civilization. Yeah, see, they were the only ones on earth that had blue and only they had the word for blue. And um, we have no idea why, but it was the Egyptians. Wow. Yeah. Now that you, you've mentioned that, you're, you're absolutely right. But it's, it's like, why? Oh, incredible. So, so Gladstone's whole crazy theory about colorblindness, it's an interesting one, right? Yeah. I mean, it really is. Yeah. <laughs> and then there is the, the Himba tribe in Namibia. Don't get me started. <laughs> but we've missed the most obvious of the blue, right? The freaking huge thing above us, the sky. <laughs> like that's, it was right there and it was back there in Homer's day. It was there. Yeah. So, so get this. So there was an experiment done with kids recently um, where three-year-olds were actually taught all the colors, including blue, but they were purposely never, ever told that the sky was blue. 
And then, you know, eventually they're all taken on a walk with the, you know, with the teacher and the teacher points out the trees and the grass and asks what colors they are and the kids get it right. And she, you know, looks at the earth and asks what color that is and they get it right. Um, and then she points and asks, points into the sky effectively and asks what color that is. And the really interesting okay. thing is that none of the kids have an answer. They've got no idea because they've no one's ever told them that the, the sky is blue. Um, okay. and, and of course, here's the really interesting thing, right? The sky is, is kind of all consuming. There's no object in the sky. The sky is just the sky. So to the kids, there was nothing of color there. So they did this two or three, two or three times over, you know, over the weeks that led into the months. And the teacher would ask them every single time they went out uh, and she would point and say, what color is that? And then eventually, kind of like months into it, one of the kids actually, you know, got very brave and said, it's white. And, and she didn't correct the kid because it was quite an interesting thing. And this went on for about another month. And then finally, one of the kids said, it's blue. But even then, it wasn't consistently blue. Sometimes the kids would say it was white. Now and again, they would say it was blue. Did they eventually decide? No, they didn't. But, you know, if you think about Homer, Homer probably never saw a blue object in his life apart from the sky and maybe the sea. So the fact that he, you know, that he never lost sleep over it doesn't, it doesn't seem strange to me anymore. But why does the sky have to be blue? I mean, it doesn't have to be blue. And weirdly, finally knowing that it is, that it is blue. I mean, for those children, it's like a loss of innocence in a way. Right. The kids, their beautiful, inquisitive, innocent minds think one way and then along comes an adult and destroys their belief with one word, blue. Well, that was quite the journey, Nick. The world yes. is not what we see anymore. And there's just so much more going on that we don't see or appreciate. It actually blows my mind. I certainly won't be looking at mantis shrimps, that, shrimps the same way <laughs> ever again. How incredible are they? I'm with you. I want to take kids out and ask them what they see. I mean, they're the future for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure in a year's time, there will be even more discoveries about colours that will blow our minds. Yeah, no doubt. Hey, before we end the show, I just want to get your thoughts on meditation. I mean, not the art of it, more that when we meditate, right, our eyes are closed and there are often colours that come up in our inner eye or third eye, whatever you call it. So, you know, we don't have to be seeing colours with our physical eyes. Right. There are colors yeah. that actually come into our imaginations when we have our eyes closed as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, that's that's happened to me for sure. All sorts of different shades of various different things. I know. I love it. I learned that from my guru in India, Sri Kalishwar. And it's no accident, right? The colors you see contain clues about your life and you're meditating. So a lot of people will be meditating with mantras. So that's an energetic word, right? The Sanskrit so it then hmm. kind of, yeah, it brings up all different energies around you. And then you're seeing these corresponding colors. That wants me to ask what they mean. Well, my friend, it's a very long, in-depth topic. And we'll have to save that for another time. <laughs> no way. You're going to leave me hanging with that. Thanks very much. <laughs> I don't want to leave you hanging, but it's just a bigger topic about the supernatural and psychic awareness. So not really for today's show, but happy to talk about it another time. I think I'm going to pour another cup of tea and tap your brain. You sit right there. <laughs> happy to talk about it until the cows come home, lovely. I just flick the kettle on, put your feet up. 
<laughs> okay, Keith, we're at the end of our show. But do you know what I loved about this show? You mean apart from being in the studio with my dulcet tones? Uh, yeah, apart from that. Which is that it's, you know, in all seriousness, it's that sometimes we're all so busy with our lives that we just take the simple things in life for granted. Right, colours are giving us so much more than just what we see. I mean, in my work, it's the healing that's behind them. And, you know, a lot like music, you can switch up your mood just by wearing a different colour or being around different colours. And I love that. Yeah, I actually like that too. I really like that. Hmm. Okay, well, folks, we hope you liked our show today. If you did, please share with your friends and write a review. If you want to get in touch, as always, you can send an email to feedback at there'salwaystea.com or contact us on Facebook and the various other platforms that we have. And remember, if life throws you a curveball, there's always tea. And colors. And colors. And colors. Bye. Yes. <laughs> Bye, Bye for, for now. now.